Coming up on today's WAC podcast, we're going to talk to Russ Bradbird, one of the most interesting men in the Western Athletic Conference. He's a New Mexico State analyst for men's basketball. He's also an author, a professor, and a former coach for both Lou Henson and Don Haskins. He has a very interesting story to tell about Sean Harrington, a former New Mexico State player, and how he's helping him out in his post-basketball career. We're also going to have an interview that Rachel Vigil did with Nick Gonzalez, who's projected to be a top five pick in this week's Major League Baseball draft, the outstanding infielder from New Mexico State. And we'll talk with Rachel about uh, things happening around the Western Athletic Conference. That's all ahead on the WAC Podcast. Just a phenomenal game. Gonzalez swings and he crushes it. Left center field. Warning track walk. Goodbye. Today's episode of the WAC Podcast is presented by Hercules Tires. Now here's your host, Eric Danner. Welcome to the WAC Podcast. My name is Eric Danner. As always, our first segment, joined by Rachel V. Hill, the WAC on-air talent and broadcasting coordinator. Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Eric? I, I, I'm doing great, uh, Rachel. It's it's June. It, it's it's Major League uh, Baseball draft week, so we have a lot to look forward to this week. First off, how was your weekend? It was good. Honestly, they're starting to fly by, I think, with the nicer weather that, you know, days are starting to roll and things are starting to open up, too, which is great to see. Uh, but, yeah, it was a good weekend. How about yours? I had a very good weekend as well. Uh, nice, nice weather. Had a little bit of rain, that type of thing. Got outside a little bit, so... Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, starting to, to warm up, so it's starting to feel a little more like summer and uh, nothing like summer, like the boys of summer in uh, Major League Baseball. The draft will be this Wednesday, and as we've been talking about, I think for the last 10 weeks here on, on the WAC podcast, Nick Gonzalez expected to be a first-round pick, uh, maybe even a, a top 10, top 5 pick in, in the Major League Baseball draft. You had a chance to talk to him this past week. I did, yeah. I chatted with him on Instagram Live, and Nick is such a sweetheart, too. He's always fantastic, always gracious, gives excellent answers. Uh, He's getting very excited. I know he was bummed about the season, but it seemed like he was more bummed for his teammates more than anything, that they didn't get a proper goodbye um, for those that may not be able to move on to the next level. But Nick's very excited for this upcoming draft. Uh, I asked him if he could have a dream team where he would go, and he said he grew up a Yankees fan. Wow. So he would love to go to the Yankees. I don't think that's going to happen because that means he would drop to like number 28. I think that's their pick. Maybe so. they could trade for him. That's true. Maybe. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Um, so it was really nice to sit down and chat with him, you know, just kind of see what he's been doing during quarantine. He said he's been playing video games with friends, but he's actually really bad at playing video games. So he'll stick with baseball for the time being. But he's definitely very excited for Wednesday's draft. And that'll be uh, at uh, 7 o'clock Eastern time on both ESPN and the Major League Baseball Network. And I talked to Adam Young last week, our our first ever guest on the WAC podcast, who's, of course, the great voice of uh, New Mexico State. He's actually going to be embedded in Nick's house uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, Might be the only media member there. I know they're, you know, obviously they'll have some sort of coverage uh, between Major League Baseball and ESPN at, at Nick's house, I would imagine. But uh, very excited for Adam to get that opportunity to be there. And, and you have to imagine all the emotions that are going to go, that, that are going to be happening when his name is actually called. 
Yeah, I'm really, really jealous. I would love to be in a house once any player, to be honest, would get drafted. I think that would be such a cool experience. Um, and obviously, Nick and Adam have a great relationship, too. So I know that they'll be very happy for Nick. And I know his dad's a big baseball fan, too. So just to sit down and see the parents' emotions, too. I love right. watching that always. So I'm really excited. And again, hopefully we get to see, hopefully ESPN or MLB is sending over some sort of camera so that we can see inside the house, too. And uh, we were talking a little bit before the show, Rachel, where, where might he go? It's so hard to predict with baseball, especially because you look at the teams and, and try to project, okay, who needs a second baseman? Uh, you know, where, where could Nick go? But it's, you know, it's like two or three years from now and, and before he would probably uh, get that chance in the majors if everything goes well. So it's hard to say two or three years from now, who's going to be the second baseman for which, whichever team. But I'll go on the record. I'll say number four to Kansas City. So you are going with the Royals. I was interested <laughs> to see what you would say. Um, I'm going seven through nine. I think he'd go to the Pirates, the Padres, or the Rockies. I think it would be so cool to see him come be a Colorado Rocky. I would love for that to happen. Uh, but, yeah, I'm going seven through nine. Uh, I don't know. It's hard because I would love for him to go, like, number one overall, two overall. Um, right. But I think I'll go seven through nine. I know that's kind of like a broad range, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, my whack in the day this week will be about uh, past, past top five, top 10 picks in the whack. Uh, last week we did Colton Wong, who was the last first round pick back in 2011. I uh, was looking it up a, a little bit uh, today and there's been four uh, whack players that have gone number one overall in the draft over the years. Uh, we talked a little bit about Rick Monday last week, first ever Major League Baseball first ever pick. Uh, so it's happened four times. Last time a middle infielder was picked in the top five or in the top 10 was uh, Corey Snyder back in 1984 at BYU. He wound up playing in the outfield uh, for the Cleveland Indians. So this is another thing that, that kind of can happen too. We saw Nick played shortstop this year, also mm -hmm. played second base his first couple of years. Colton Wong was an outfielder his first year in Hawaii and last year was the best defensive second baseman in the Major League Baseball. So uh, they, there's all sorts of things that can happen once uh, Nick gets to that professional level as well. I know that was something I was really interested. Like, will he stay at shortstop or second base or will he have to move around? And, you know, he's top five in 10 different categories. So obviously he's very good at wherever they're going to put him, I'm sure. But I always think that's a super interesting point about baseball, because usually for any other sport, you're in your specific um, position. But for baseball, it's kind of like you're you can be thrown either way and you just got to learn to go with it. And uh, Rachel, I have to mention, it was great to see you this past week in the office. We both I know. Uh, happened to be in there as, as things are starting to open up a little bit more around the country and uh, getting things situated and that type of thing. So it's starting maybe to feel a little bit more normal. And uh, we're seeing that kind of around the country. And actually, one of the things I saw, uh, Tarleton State actually started workouts uh, this past week with, with student athletes. And looking at the pitchers are socially distanced. They're doing it in the football stadium, doing it outside. So not, you know, using weights uh, inside in a weight room just yet, but kind of a good sign. I think that we're starting to see more normal things starting to happen. Yeah, it gives me good, good hope that uh, fall sports will definitely be happening, which will be great. I can't imagine working out in a football field in Texas, though, during this time of year. <laughs> like, that, 
that's brutal to me. I was thinking about going for a run today and I'm like, okay, it's going to be 82. You know, that's not bad. And then I think about Texas and it's probably like 98 there with humidity. So <laughs> it's a little yeah. more brutal. Yeah, no, I do the same thing. I look at my, my phone. Okay. When's it going to be the least, you know, uh, maybe I'll go seven o'clock today or when it, when it starts cooling off a little bit, but I'm, I'm sure they have that all figured out as well. Probably morning workouts, I'm guessing in Texas. Uh, Whack all access this week. Uh, well, you had uh, Nick Gonzalez last week. I know you were planning on uh, Megan Colvitter this week, yes, another Megan. one of our favorites. Yes, I love Megan. Uh, she is a superstar all in her own from Chicago State. So we're going to be sitting down chatting with her at 12 p.m. Mountain Time. Have the time confirmed there. So sit down. We'll chat for 25 minutes. She just got a big award with the NCAA Career Development Award. I wanted to make sure I got that correct. So uh, super excited for her. She's done so much and her time at Chicago State, and I know that she's going to do extremely well in the future, so it'll be nice to sit and chat with her. And that's going to be on Wednesday this week? Wednesday, Instagram Live, 12 p.m. Mountain Time. Big day Wednesday, because you'll have that, and then we have the uh, the Major League Baseball draft later that day, so very, very big day for uh, the WAC Digital Network. Speaking of the uh, a big day for the WAC Digital Network, we received two uh, uh, nominations for awards for the SVG uh, College Sports Awards, which uh, first time this has happened for the WAC. So very proud of that to Rachel. And and one of the stories is called Remembering Corey Miggins. It was her Learn, Compete, Inspire story. And it was one uh, last year, went to the, the SAC meeting and, and got the chance to interview Megan Clavitter and talked to her a little bit about that and was thinking, boy, this is a great story. Need to figure out how to do this. And obviously we, we needed video. We need some interviews. And, and you went up to Fort Collins, which if people don't know, that's, that's a pretty good trek to go from Denver to Fort Collins when uh, Chicago State played Colorado State. And yeah. If you ever see the video of our P PSA that we do with Megan, that's, that's from that. And a big portion of the video in this uh, package was from that as well. And you interviewed the, the volleyball coach and had to set all that up. And Hope Schuler was a big part of it as well, where uh, she organized the SIDs in, in the Chicago area and helped had them help out. For those of you who don't know, Megan Clavitter uh, helped out after Corey Megan's passed away, their longtime SID, very beloved SID, uh, unexpectedly at the age of 40, mm -hmm. and wound up being kind of a, a, obviously a tragic story, but a, a good story in how people came together after that. So many people were involved in this story. Yeah, so many. And again, it wasn't just Megan. Megan did an awesome job from two, but so many SIDs I know helped out uh, covering games for them and just trying to get out some product for, you know, press releases to stats to everything. So um, obviously we miss Corey. Um, we hope his family is doing well, but so many people, like you mentioned, help out once Corey passed. So it's great to see that this uh, video did get some recognition. Recogni Thank you. I cannot talk anymore. Um, but yeah, we're super happy. And it's super exciting that for the first time, the WAC gets an award like this or a nomination like this. So. Right, right. Yeah, we're, we're uh, up against some stiff competition there, I know, in, in that category. NCAA, I think Big 12 are, are also nominated. And also a live coverage of, of, a, of an event. Uh, we also were nominated for the WAC Volleyball Championship match, which uh, was at Utah Valley. And uh, such a great job the uh, UVU TV folks did. That was the, the one I was telling you, Rachel, when I was producing it. It was like a mile away from, from the arena, and it was so weird, but they have this spectacular uh, studio in, in at Utah Valley, and, and so many students, you know, doing all, all sorts of different jobs, replay, graphics, you know, technical directing, directing, uh, it just, just so many 
good folks. Uh, Joshua Weber was was the director. He's no longer at UVU TV, but he did a fantastic job. So glad to see that that got nominated. I was telling you we were trying to nominate two uh, live events, and then it didn't let me. But hey, it, it got nominated, so I can't complain about that. That's all that matters. It's a team team. What's the word I want to say? Like I said, I can't talk, but it's a team uh, collaboration team here, right? Yes. So I'm just happy that we have something nominated. Yeah, no, that, that was very exciting news. Uh, Whacktop plays this week is Chicago State week, and uh, we have four four pretty good ones. Ricardo McKenzie uh, winning the 200-meter dash at the indoor championships in the come-from-behind fashion. What was a pretty good highlight, uh, women's tennis. They won in uh, – uh, set four to three over Wright State, so it's the clinching point, and when they, you know, all, all jump on top of each other, and and as Mata Boykes, when uh, she had a big bucket down the stretch against CSU Bakersfield in their win uh, at CSUB, and then uh, also a tip in by uh, Carlos Marble uh, or Carlo Marble as uh, as time expired at the end of uh, one of the halves. So that is the the contest this week and next week uh, will be a big one. We got Grand Canyon coming up. Oh, gosh. We know how those Lopes fans are. They're super, super into all of their sports, so it'll be very interesting to see how they vote for what could be the best top play. And uh, this past week, obviously, there was a lot uh, going on in terms of, you know, I I don't know if the right term, Rachel, is, is protest. People were marching mainly peacefully, so I don't know if that's necessarily called a, a protest. I think people were raising awareness of in the in light of uh, George Floyd's uh, murder death and uh, I think most of it was good I actually went out uh, that was one of the things I did this weekend with my daughter went out to downtown Colorado Springs and and drove around a little bit to see some of some of that so I know a lot of people around the country are doing that as well and it seems that it's it's mainly positive now if if that's fair to say yeah I think it's really taken off as um you know, athletes are also joining in, um, celebrities, musicians are also joining in. And I think it has really taken a turn for it to be very peaceful and just trying to bring awareness. You know, it kind of started off as this looting and then you saw so many voices come forward and they were like, what are we doing? We're not helping ourselves by doing this. So it's turned definitely more peaceful. Um, I, hopefully nobody else is getting hurt. I know it's hard when you're trying to bring awareness to something and then people don't quite understand it. But I hope that people are just listening nowadays. Um, I've, I've learned so much this entire week to just listen and I may never understand the struggles that some people have to deal with, but just to listen and to know that they do face these and how I can help is kind of what I've taken away from this past week. And um, hopefully other people kind of get that lesson as well. Yeah, the Western Athletic Conference, we put out a statement. The recent developments that have occurred across the country are tragic reminders that equality for all, unfortunately, is not a reality for far too many people. One of the core values of the Western Athletic Conference is to inspire our student-athletes gain values that extend far beyond their academic and athletic years at their respective universities. The life lessons learned provide the inspiration for each to become better individuals and stronger leaders that work to create meaningful societal change. The WAC stands with our student athletes, coaches, administrators, and institutions in coming together to uphold the values of inclusion, diversity, and equality. Injustice or discrimination of any kind cannot be tolerated. It is our differences that make us stronger. Above all, we are committed to doing our part to strengthen our communities and to be stronger together. And that was, uh, of course, uh, put out uh, 
by the Western Athletic Conference. I thought a great job there uh, encapsulating a lot of different ideas there, Rachel. And, and of course, we, we also see those uh, same values ourselves. Yeah, and I hope all the student athletes, all the staff members, anybody involved in the Western Athletic Conference understand that we do stand by that. And um, we are, we're here if anybody needs anything as well. Yeah, New Mexico State's men's basketball team, of course, uh, I think every WAC school put out some sort of statement, a lot of different uh, coaches, uh, uh, student athletes. Uh, New Mexico State men's basketball team got some notoriety. CBS Sports actually did a, a thing on their website about how their men's basketball team uh, marched in Las Cruces, and it was inspired by Tennessee Owens, uh, a walk-on player who was going to go down to the protests, and other players caught wind of it, Jabari Rice, and they, they got together and talked to the coaches and decided to go down as a team. Yeah, loved those pictures that we saw. Uh, it's great to see Coach Jans, you know, kind of taking that initiative to to go down there with his team and put a statement out as well to sit there and talk. I know, I feel like most coaches, like you mentioned, did put out a statement. I'm trying to think if I don't know of any that didn't, but most did, and it was really nice to see Coach Jams down there, and they took a team picture, and, you know, I know not all of the members of the team were down there, but a majority of them were still in Las Cruces, so it was really great to see, and um, hopefully they feel the support of the community as well. Yeah, and also they, they made sure they're wearing masks, so, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, in this time, a, a lot of people are, are wondering, you know, we're, we're still in this COVID crisis, and there's you know, all these, these big crowds, but I, I know the New Mexico State, every, every player on the team and the, and the coaches, they, they were all wearing the masks during these uh, marches. Yeah, I, I'm just going to say, from somebody who's just gone outside wearing a mask, like, it's brutal in the summer heat, and we know it can get very hot in Las Cruces, so for them to march wearing masks in the heat, major props to them. Uh, I also noticed uh, San Jose State Men's Soccer, who's an affiliate member of the conference, uh, Simon Tobin, their head coach, who we've gotten to know a little bit over the past few years, Rachel, at the WAC soccer tournaments. He had his team uh, stand in front of the the statues on campus of Tommy Smith and John Carlos, and that's the famous 1968 Olympics. Uh, Tommy Smith won the gold medal in the in the 200 and, and had, had his fist in the air with, with a black uh, glove on, and uh, John Carlos had the bronze medal. He was also on the victory stand and had his left hand with, with the with the glove on. And that, that was very controversial at the time. They were suspended from the Olympics uh, when that happened because they did that during the national anthem. Uh, 2005, San Jose State, where both Tommy and John went to school, they built this, this statue, uh, pretty incredible, on campus. And the, the San Jose State men's soccer team decided to to stand in front of that for a picture and I, I thought pretty uh, pretty appropriate for the times that we're in right now. Yeah, I think it was super meaningful to see that picture. Once I saw it, I just really thought, wow, to you know, to go march is one thing too, but to actually stand there and somebody who went to your school who's kind of considered a legend at your school to sit there and say, we're protecting those people too. I just think it was a really, really thoughtful um, act by all of them. And then the uh, College Summer Baseball Invitational was on ESPN this past weekend. First uh, live baseball games we, we've seen in a while, and it was uh, held in Bryan, Texas. And uh, Coleman Grubbs of uh, UTRGV had a chance to participate in this. Also, uh, Luke Bailey of Tarleton w was in the, these games. Obviously, they're in Texas. They had uh, more Texas uh, universities uh, represented in that. But uh, good to see live 
baseball in the United States uh, for the first time, what, since March? I, I can't believe it. Sports are coming back. Uh, yeah, really great to see. I'm so happy live sports. You just don't know the outcome, which is why we all love live sports, right? We don't know what's going to happen. So it's always fun to see. And then for these guys to get an opportunity to just go out and play too. I know they all miss it. They're bummed about their season. So it's really nice to see. I was telling you a few weeks ago on the show here, Rach, I was watching some Bundesliga from Germany and it was very odd because there was no crowd noise and and they decided, I think the next week, they heard, they, they, they listened to the WAC podcast in Germany, I'm pretty sure. And they, they decided, oh, we need to pump in some crowd noise. And they've since started doing that. And it really, when you're watching it on TV, it, you don't, it, you need that sound. You, you need mm-hmm. something going on. But I know, uh, Rachel, you also have a position with the Colorado Rapids of the MLS. And yeah. uh, they're, they're talking about whether they... They, they might be coming back in the next uh, month or so. And, and uh, how's that going to work with, uh, I, I would imagine, no crowds at uh, Major League Soccer games? Yeah, I'm not really sure. No date has been announced. Um, it's kind of all just talk, right? We don't really know which direction to go. Um, I'm very, very excited. Hopefully it does uh, come back. You know, some people are saying with NFL possibly having fans that other sports may have fans, and we just don't really know. So I'm actually like the ENC for them. I do all their hosting for their uh, matches. So with no sports fans, I technically, I guess, don't know what I'll be doing. Um, It sounds like I may be hosting some sort of social shows, which will be kind of cool and a a different experience for me there. But yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I know they've had talks of doing a tournament down in Orlando, just kind of like um, the NBA is going to do. Uh, and then uh, I think one thing I heard from MLS, not um, specifically the Colorado Rapids, is doing like drive-in movie theater kind of things. So people right. sit in their cars to watch matches, which is a really cool idea. I would never think to do that. Um, but I love the idea of it. You know, we all miss that sense of community where we all go and we cheer on our favorite team. So even if they would score a goal for all those people to be in their cars and screaming and yelling, even if we're all six feet apart and kind of in our own little bubble, we're still together. So I'm not really sure what the season will look like. Um, hopefully we get a full season in um, right. I know it'll be probably shortened a little bit but uh it'll be interesting to see what kind of fan noise they do bring in because yeah it's you know when you watch any sporting event and there's no screaming in the background you're kind of just like what's, <laughs> what's happening yeah, uh, where are the fans MLB or not MLB the NBA is thinking about um pumping in 2k crowd noise so right I don't know what's going to happen there um everything's kind of still up in the air but Sports are on their way to a return, which is what we all want to see. <laughs> we sure do. We sure do. And some of the other kind of summertime things that, that are going on around the league. Uh, I saw Dixie State putting in their new floor. We had Jason Booth on the show uh, a couple weeks ago, and I know he was excited about that and uh, getting getting the whack uh, on the floor there. So these are the kind of things that would typically happen during the summer that might not get that much notoriety. But, they, you know, hey, since things aren't uh, happening too much, uh, that that's kind of an exciting thing, I, I know, for the folks at Dixie. Yeah, it makes me happy, too. I'm like, wow, look at it. And it looks great, too. Uh, I've heard their fans are super, super into all the sports down there at Dixie. So I'm very excited for them to be joining the WAC. I can't wait to see. Maybe they'll give GCU a little competition for their uh, basketball games, which is, you know, always fun. Well, last week, we had uh, Violet Palmer on the show. Uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that on, on one of our platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, or uh, you can you can re-listen to that interview. Uh, what a what a story she has! First female uh, NBA official. 
did it for nearly 20 years and is our coordinator of women's basketball officials in the WAC. And she actually lives not too far. We, we talked to her last week, we recorded the show on Mondays. So let everybody know uh, when we talked to her last week, uh, she was in a, in a spot not too far from where there was, there was a lot of uh, protesting and, and some uh, looting and, and that type of thing going on. So hopefully she's safe, but uh, definitely uh, worth a follow there too. She, she's pretty active on, uh, on Instagram. NBA Lashes is her, uh, her account. I love the name. And yeah, that podcast episode was fantastic. I think she's got so much great information. You know, her stories are really awesome to listen to too. And I just the Instagram and the Twitter handle, both of them. I love them. Uh, but, and I think she's got such a, just a really great personality and uh, she's very inspiring as well. So she's definitely right. Give her a follow, but also listen to that podcast episode from last week. I also think she does a great job of kind of explaining, you know, everything that we're all trying to learn right now as well. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of, one of my favorites. And uh, coming up next for those listening on uh, our podcast uh, partners, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and, and SoundCloud. We're going to have Russ Bradbird from New Mexico State. Uh, I call him the, like, he's like the Dos Equis guy of, of the WAC. He's, he's one of the most interesting people. He was a Division One basketball coach, a coach with Don Haskins at UTEP, coach with Lou Henson at New Mexico State. Both coaches won more than 700 games. I think he's the only coach to have coached with two 700-game winners, and he quit to become an author. He, he's written several books. He's written nonfiction. He's written fiction. Uh, he also write, writes a number of articles that we've seen. We mentioned on the show before. And, yeah. and he's a professor at New Mexico State. And he's also their men's basketball analyst. So he has a lot going on. I look forward to talking to him, especially about uh, some of the, the marching that we saw with New Mexico State men's basketball. And he, he's got a unique perspective on things as well. So that'll be coming up next. Rachel, want to thank you as always. And, and we'll We'll see you uh, before too long, maybe even later this week. Yes, absolutely, Eric. Make sure you ask Russ where he thinks Nick is going to go. I that will. I'll kind of compare and see who got the correct <laughs> answer. <laughs> All right, that is Rachel Vigil. You're listening to the WAC Podcast. We would like to thank our partners, Hercules Tires, Ticket Smarter, and Adidas. Now, back to the WAC Podcast. Welcome back to the WAC Podcast. My name is Eric Danner, reminding you that Hercules Tires is the official tire of the Western Athletic Conference and for over 65 years has been providing tires with unbeatable quality at an unmatched value. Whatever the vehicle, whatever the terrain, Hercules Tires invites you to ride on our strength. For a retailer near you, visit HerculesTires.com. And joining us now on the WAC Podcast, he's kind of the Dos Equis guy of... Uh, of the whack he's he's very interesting he's he's an analyst he's an author he's a professor he's a former coach his name is russ bradbird russ how you doing today great eric thanks and i'm good to good to be here on the whack podcast hey russ uh wanted to get you on uh, there's there's several topics that we, we can run down here in the next uh, half hour, 45 minutes. But I uh, wanted to start off with what, what are things like in Las Cruces in that area? We saw a story on CBS Sports with the Coach Jans uh, marching with his team uh, there in Las Cruces at, at some of the marches they had going on. So what are things like uh, right now in Las Cruces? Well, aside from that, it's really hot. You know, Las Cruces <laughs> has, has always been a pretty progressive city, Erica. We had an African-American mayor named Albert Johnson in the 1970s, and um, we were the only school in America, other than historically black colleges in Division One, 
to have uh, African-American athletic director, head basketball coach, head football coach at the same time. And so not that it's perfect. And of course, you know, we've all got, we've all got a long way to go, but it's, 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 it's always been, uh, this part of the world has always been a, a good place to be an African-American athlete. But that being said, you know, our players are from all over and they've been, you know, they've been, uh, really mobilized in a way that I've never seen it at New Mexico state with peaceful protest and, uh, standing up and, you know, going to the, I went to one of the demonstrations myself and it was, it was as peaceful and as loving as you could hope for. Like even a, you know, a black cop got up and spoke about unity and, you know, if we weren't all wearing masks, we should be hugging right now. And that kind of, that kind of thing. And, and I looked across the way and it looked like the entire Aggie team was there and, and, you know, Chris, Chris Chance is only five foot eight. So I, you know, but there he was, you know, with other assistant coaches. And so they've been, they've been, they've been very involved. And, and, and again, New Mexico, New Mexico state, uh, Las Cruces uh, in general and New Mexico state in particular has always been uh, good in terms of the national scale, in terms of uh, per, pro, racial progress. And as, as we know, it's often through sports has often been the leader in, in the, racial progress and racial justice. Talking with Russ Bradbird. Russ, I, I think I saw this stat, and maybe you can verify it for me, that you were an assistant coach for both Don Haskins at UTEP and Lou Henson at New Mexico State. Both coaches win more than 700 games in their career. You're the only assistant coach to have coached with two 700-win coaches. Is that correct? Well, I don't, I don't know if that's – I mean, I know that I have done that. Now, whether right. other assistant coaches have done that or not, I, I don't know. But – I was really fortunate in that way, and that you know, you know, Don, I think the WAC Coach of the Year is uh, is called the Don Haskins Award. Correct. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's, I was with I was with Don Haskins for eight years, and and Lou Henson for for three, and I was always uh, it always struck me how very different they were in some ways, and and very similar in other ways. Um, and I'll also I will also say you know Don, Don of course is in the Hall of Fame, but Lou Henson should be in the oh, Hall yeah. of Fame. You know when uh, when uh, Dan Wetzel, the great Yahoo.com sports writer, made a case back maybe 15 years ago that that he claimed that the greatest college coach of all time was Don Haskins, that he you know won the national championship at a place where no you know no one ever would have aspired to go to on the border on the you know, the border of El Paso and the border of America and, and Mexico. And he'd won in the most difficult place ever to win a national championship. And, you know, made the case that Don was the greatest coach who ever, greatest college coach ever. And that may be true, Eric, but if that's true, what does it mean? You know, Lou Henson at one time won 10 games in a row against Don Haskins. And I think his overall record against Don was 15-10. and 10. Wow. And so, you know, there, there, Haskins, of course, was a remarkable coach, but, you know, Lou Henson was every bit as good. Uh, and and, and we'll, maybe we'll get into the Lou Henson story. We all know that Don desegre- you know, helped desegregate college basketball in 1966, but, but Lou had done a, a very similar deed in his first college job. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Of course, the, the movie Glory Road was made about uh, Don Haskins and the team at Texas Western uh, beating Kentucky in the national championship. And uh, recently, uh, Russ, uh, we do this segment called Whack in the Day, and we're looking at some of the uh, greatest teams. And we did a thing called Whackatology with some of the greatest teams in Whack history. In 1966, Utah went to that Final Four as well, and they were uh, the champions of the Whack that year. Of course, as you mentioned, UTEP 
uh, which was then Texas Western, uh, became members of the WAC a little bit later on. So there's a lot of WAC ties into that story. But uh, when you were uh, with Coach Haskins and with Coach Henson, as you mentioned, they're both pretty progressive. And what were some of the lessons you learned from from those coaches in terms of uh, racial equality and those type of things? Well, they were they were different in, in, in many ways, as I said, Eric. And with, with Don, Don Haskins was remarkably apolitical, and he didn't pay attention to race in some ways. I, th- I think what appealed to, to Don Haskins about African-American players as much as anything was Don was a champion of the little guy. Anybody who's the underdog or the downtrodden, he was constantly under the radar, I think, helping people whose car had broken down or you know, people who'd, who'd lost their jobs and those kind of, but doing it under the radar. But he was, for, for someone who'd changed the world in 1966 by starting the first uh, all-black championship team to win the NCAA title, you'd have thought that he was obsessed with race. But the opposite was true. And that I would, so, sometimes a recruit would come to campus and then we, you know, after 48 hours, you'd take him back to the airport and, and get back to the office. And Coach Haskins would say, God, the way y'all talked about him, I just assumed he was white. Or, or And it happened vice versa. He was just disinterested in that. And in a way, you know, in a way I have a great admiration for, you know, for that, you know, I, I wrote the Nolan Richardson biography right. called 40 minutes of hell. And Nolan was obsessed with race and, and talked about race and noticed race. And so, and I think it's easier for it's, and Of course, it's easier for a, a, a white man to, to say, well, race doesn't matter. But I, I think for, for Don, he was not, it was not a political act for him. It was just sort of, Doing what he felt was the right thing, getting the best players he could, but I do think I do think he liked. He never would say this, of course, but I do think he liked sort of sticking his thumb in the eye of the University of Kentucky, and he would never admit this either. But I think you know, there was, he always played white players despite having five black stars, but in the last game he did not, and I'll I'll always think that that was him thumbing his nose at the establishment and putting his thumb in, in Adolph Rupp's eye. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Lou Henson, for his part, many people don't know this story that he was his first college job was Harden Simmons, and he only he took the job under two conditions: that he could desegregate the team and, and recruit black players, but he wanted to bring along uh, Joe Rodriguez, a kid who played for him in high school. He wanted to bring along Joe as as his uh, assistant coach. Well, that really rattled everybody at Harden Simmons, and I think that they, you know, it was a conservative Baptist school. But Lou got his way, and they had good teams at Harden Simmons. Now he never won the championship, and he didn't beat Kentucky. But this was before, uh, you know, before he came to New Mexico State. So it was around the same time that that Don was was uh, doing his great job. And but the, and the other part of the story, Eric, that people don't often the movie. I thought the movie was a good Hollywood movie, but much of it isn't true. Right. Nolan Richardson was already on the team the, the day Don Haskins showed up in El Paso. It was Nolan Richardson who helped him unpack his his U-Haul. And so there were there was already two black players on the team. Don did not desegregate Texas Western. It was already you know it was already a, a relatively you know relatively desegregated. Um, um, and, I, and one of the things I learned from Nolan Richardson is it's one thing to desegregate and it's another thing to integrate. And it's another thing to have uh, black coaches in leadership positions, which of course the WAC has done a tremendous job of with, with Rod Baker and, and, and Marvin Menzies at one time and, and uh, Lou Hill down in, in Rio Grande and 
We had Kareem Richardson at Missouri, Kansas City, and the Chicago State coach has been Tracy Gilby and Lance Urban. So the WAC has been very progressive. But one of the, but to get back to their similarities, they, they could both be very stubborn on important stuff and surprisingly flexible at times. Like, I mean, at one point, I remember Don Haskins saying, I'll, I don't want, I'm never going to have a player on my team with a tattoo. Well, of course, that would, you, you might not feel the team if you had those rules today. And he, he, you know, he wound up bending on that just as he did. You know, he was known as a man-to-man coach that thought zone defense was like a curse word. It was the worst, the worst thing you could possibly say. You could, he'd rather you insulted his mother than suggest zone defense. But by the end of his career, he was playing zone, zone from time to time, really surprising people with the effectiveness of it. And I'd say the other interesting difference between them in terms of styles. Don kept things incredibly simple. He thought the players would forget stuff if you complicate it in the heat of the battle. They might not remember. But Lou Henson, with 10 seconds to go, would drop an entirely new play. And I thought, they're never going to remember this. And then sure enough, we executed it perfectly, made the basket, and won the game. And so they had, they had in some ways, they had very different views of the game. But in, in some ways, they were very similar. Talking with Russ Bradbird. And Russ, you're an assistant, as we just mentioned, for Don Haskins at UTEP. And you come from Chicago, and you had some connections there. And, and as I understand it, you uh, you recruited uh, a young man by the name of Tim Hardaway to UTEP. Tim was the first Chicago high school player to play at UTEP. They'd had, a, a, again, in Charlie Brakes back in the early 70s. But Charlie was a, a junior college player. And so, But Hardaway, I, I would like to take credit for what a genius I am, Eric. But I saw him play at a playground game and then saw him play a few days later at the YMCA in a pickup game. And, and the playground game was three-on-three, in the, and it was windy. But he looked like a good little player, and he could really see the floor. And we took a chance on him. I didn't know that he was that good. And I, I think in retrospect, where I really hit gold with him was that he was probably as good as the other top point guards in Chicago, but nobody knew about him. And he had, a, I don't want to say he had a chip on his shoulder, but he felt like he, he I think he resented that he wasn't getting the attention that, that these other guys were getting. And he felt like he had something to prove. And I do think that the the, the smart move on in my case it was mostly luck, but the idea of getting a guy who feels like he has something to prove rather than a guy who's gotten so many accolades that he thinks that, you know, that things are going to be easy for him. So, so Tim came in with a real, you know, was on a mission to prove that he was as good as actually one of the guards was Tracy Dildy, who wound up as the head coach of, of Chicago state. And another was James Farr that became the uh, assistant that went to Creighton. He became the assistant coach at Chicago state. And these guys were all ranked higher than, than, than Tim Hardaway. But the, the other blessing with Tim Hardaway was that he was such an exciting player in the summer league playground games where he got to, you know, coach Haskins didn't let him throw behind the back passes and dribble between his legs, you know, uh, as much. And so when he played in these summer league games, just a whole giant crowds in Chicago watched him. And I think it really had a Pied Piper effect where we were getting, we wound up getting sort of a parade of good Chicago players down to El Paso for a while. And New Mexico state has done, you know, for many years did great with, did great with Chicago players. Actually before my time, they started with, theirs happened a little bit later, but they got Randy Brown right. and Randy led to, Randy led to, led to Michael new. And that led to this guy and that guy. And, and, and we've had, and we've, we had uh, quite a run of Chicago players, uh, including Sean Harrington, who I hope we'll talk about later. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about Sean in a little bit here. Talking with Russ Bradbird, a analyst, author, professor, 
and a former coach uh, in in the Western Athletic Conference. Uh, Russ, you are part of an organization called Athletes United for Peace, and since 1992, you've been director of basketball in the Barrio in El Paso. What was what was the idea behind that? Well, basketball in the Barrio started. Uh, I'll admit <laughs> that it it sort of made saddened me to realize that you know when we did the basketball camps at UTEP. You know, and they were relatively cheap on a national scale. I think they were two hundred dollars back in the nineteen eighties, or one hundred fifty. But the kids from South El Paso couldn't afford to go. I had talked to Nolan Richardson about this at length. Is that most kids couldn't afford? And I think it's true for in a lot of places. The kids that populate NCAA teams oftentimes couldn't have afforded to pay for a college basketball camp. That felt like a problem to me. Like I think it's it's one thing to say, oh, you know, Sean Miller's making so much money. This is fair, but he's also making money, you know, all like especially in the power conferences. These guys, many of these guys, are making a million dollars from their mm-hmm. summer camp, and that felt that 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 I felt that was heartbreaking that these kids couldn't go to camp. And so I started doing a camp in El Paso basketball in the barrio, and it initially charged twenty dollars for a week. And then uh, there was a man that I knew named Rocky Galarza, who was a uh, boxing trainer of all things, but he had been Nolan Richardson's hero when he was a kid, and he got killed in a in a domestic dispute back in 1997 and when he died i just thought all right that's it we're, we're charging a dollar now and we tried to limit it to kids from segundo barrio which is the poorest per capita neighborhood in america and uh, and they're little kids they're six to ten year olds and every kid gets a, a basketball a t-shirt a bilingual children's book a harmonica, if you can believe it, a jump rope, and then all kinds of free ice cream and, and that kind of thing. And we just felt like it's not—it's—it's it's a very different camp where we blend in education and uh, music and dance and poetry and uh, storytelling, all within the the basketball portion. I could probably get sued if someone wants to say, if someone wanted to say, "Geez, it's only one third basketball. I want my dollar back." Um, <laughs> but we've been we've, we've been doing it for twenty eight years, and we won't do it. I've been doing it, directing it for 20 years. We won't do it this summer because of the virus, but we're doing a funny thing. We're bringing in Sean Harrington to just hand out uh, the book, the bilingual books, the uh, T-shirts, and the basketballs. We'll keep a safe distance, and we're going to open it up to the kids in, in Segundo Barrio, which means second neighborhood you know, second ward. Uh, we're going to open it up, and the kids will still get their – we just won't be able to have the camp, but they'll at least get a basketball, a T-shirt, and a book. Well, you mentioned Sean Harrington, and, and when you went from UTEP to New Mexico State, I, I believe he was one of the first recruits, again, that Chicago connection. Uh, he only played a year for, for the Yankees, but you developed a, a lifetime friendship, it, it seems, with Sean. Well, what happened to Sean at, at New Mexico State was, was partly my fault. He played great. He was our leading scorer, led the team in steals and assists, but he blew out a knee. And it's one of the funny things. It happens all the time in college sports, especially at the higher levels. I would say probably not so much in the whack, but 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 if a guy gets hurt, the coaches have to decide. You know, are we bringing? You know, scholarships are renewable from year to year, and we decided not to. This was under Neil McCarthy, the other head coach I worked with, and we decided not to bring him back because he was hurt, and our, our thinking was he wouldn't be as good anymore. Now we didn't say to him, "You're done. You're out of here." It was done the way my college girlfriend broke up with me. Right? I just got the writing on, you know, there's the writing on the wall. We sort of stopped 
you know, stopped, you know, communicating with him every few days and see how we see how his classes were going. And we signed a couple point guards and he actually came to us and said, I've decided to transfer to Northwest Missouri. But I just know that, you know, you, you know, it's a, it's a tough business oftentimes for, for, you know, there's kids involved and it's a tough business and there's a lot at stake. And so there's times when kids, you know, when kids are sort of cast off to the and so it always stuck with me but i and i lost track of him i didn't talk to him for a long time but when he got shot uh, i reached out to him when he was in the you know when he was in the icu and talked to him and he you know mentioned there was a going to be a benefit game and i just blurted out this is back in 2014 i just blurted out i'm going to be there and so flew up to see him and on the flight up there i brought the old media guide to give to him and i was i started to remember oh yeah we wound up you know, we sort of wound up sort of cutting him in a way, although he he still to this day disagrees with me. He thinks it was his decision, but but I kind of know how things go down and you know, oftentimes it's just done through innuendo and that thing. But I, we we became friendly again, and I started checking in on him every few days, and then I got obsessed with helping him. You know, he lost his paychecks see, because he wasn't a, a, a teacher. He's an educational support, they call it, in Chicago, and so he didn't have the same union contract and so his health care got cut his paycheck stopped and i just got obsessed with you know in america that someone could do he you know he wound up saving his daughter's life when he got shot he dove on top of his daughter but took a bullet in the back so the cops said that right, right. No and it, it was a was it a drive-by shooting no he was he was driving it was 7 30 in the morning he was driving his daughter to school mm-hmm. to westinghouse high school he dropped he'd drop her off and then go work with the special ed kids at marshall high school the same high school as hoop greens right uh, where he where he where he had attended and graduated from and you know sean got his degree from northwest missouri he earned his degree went home and was a great father to his kids and you know, he didn't marry the mother but he lived he lived a few blocks away and saw the daughters every day and um and he pretty much did everything we've asked young men to do. And then here he was, he was going to be confined to probable homelessness, but for sure a life of poverty uh, because of, because of the shooting. And it made me, I'll admit it made me a little bit crazy. I got obsessed with, we cannot let this happen to this guy after this heroic act. And not just the heroic act, but sort of the, the day-to-day struggle that people with disabilities, I've just learned a lot about disabilities and and just how these people can often fall through the cracks in american society of course we're, we're a long way from basketball now eric sorry, forgive me but but it just it just i became obsessed with it and so i started telling marvin menzies about it who was of course then the head coach at new mexico state and he was extremely supportive and after he left paul weir of course was very supportive too and paul became obsessed with it and you know and then when mario mochia heard about it Mario called me in one day, and I said, oh, I've done something wrong as a <laughs> color analyst. I, I must not have said the right thing. And he's three times now he has called me in and said, what, what else can we do? What else? Can we, and we've had these powwows with Mario Mocha and Chris Jans. You know, Chris, so Chris Jans got the idea through Casey Owens, one of the assistant coaches. But Chris Jans got the idea to, um, we're going to give Sean Herring a WAC championship ring. And, you know, because Sean had inspired the team. And, and so last fall, Chris Jans, you know, gave him, I don't, I'm going to imagine it's a thousand dollar ring. Yeah. And it just, you know, so the, all of New Mexico State, the fans and, and the media and the, and the coaches and the players have really adopted Sean in ways that were really uh, inspiring to me. So this, and, and, and I do want to return to that idea that when we decided not to renew his scholarship, I was sitting in that meeting, and I could have said, now wait just a damn minute here. 
I quit if we, you know, or we can't do that. That's the wrong thing to do. And I just sort of went along with, you know, and I think that happens to us. I wasn't that young at the time. I was nearly 40. Uh, so I can't use my age as an excuse. And I, I think some, it happens to all of us, I think, where we look back on something we did or said or didn't do. And I, I look back on that moment with Sean Harrington, like he was a great kid. And a really good player. And he wound up a first-team Division II All-American. So anyone who's a first-team Division II All-American is going to be a good player at New Mexico State. I and mean, we clearly made a mistake on it. And so, I, you know, there's, I, have, I think I did some good things as an assistant coach, Eric. But, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of things that I, you know, that I think we could all improve on in college basketball. And, and, and for me, it's heartening to think that, that Mario Melchia, the athletic director, is he's nearly as obsessed as I am. I mean, he's, you know, it, it's a constant question from him and even Sherry Jones who's in charge of the boosters and, and of course, Lou Henson and they're all, they've all sort of gotten on board. And so what we've done is we've, we've put a big down payment down on his, his first, uh, uh, wheelchair accessible condo. He's moving into it in the next few weeks. It's not paid for. And we've got quite a bit of fundraising to do yet, but he's at least in the door and we don't want him to get kicked out of course and, and miss payments. But, but just through the support of, of New Mexico state, uh, we, we've, 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 change Sean Harrington's life for the better. Yeah, what, what an amazing story that is, Russ. And and actually, Real Sports HBO uh, picked up on it a few years ago, and you had a, a, a sit-down interview with Brian Gumble. Yeah, Gumble was very interesting. He's a Chicago native, of course. And, and then the Today Show picked it up. And uh, just forgive me for mentioning this, but, you know, that, I wrote the book about Sean. The book is called All the Dreams We've Dreamed, and and uh, which is uh, uh, and the sub the sort of the subtitle is a story of hoops and handguns on Chicago's West side. And one of the, you know, of course, gun violence has plagued Chicago and much of America for a long time. But one of the, after I started writing the book, one by one, it wound up being six, six ex players of Sean Harrington's at Marshall have been killed. Mm. So one, actually a current player that would have been a division one player for sure named Edward Bryant. And the rest were guys who were done playing and sort of lost and not sure what to do. And, I think one or two of them were mistaken identity. A few of them were, you know, guys getting involved with the wrong people at the wrong time of day. Uh, but as Sean's case really dramatically demonstrates is if, if it's 7.30 in the morning and he's on his commute, no, nobody's safe if it's happening at 7.30 in the morning. Hmm. And, and, and so, that, that the, so the book has done remarkably well, and there's, there's talk about making it into a movie. And Sean is, and that's what's one of the amazing things about Sean Harrington's story is He's become friends with Tim Hardaway, and he's friends with Randy Brown, and he knows Nolan Richardson. Dale Brown, you know, Shaq's coach calls him every week, and mm. so he's got. He's in a way, it seems like he's living with Arnie Duncan, uh, Obama's Secretary of Education, checks in with him, and they've become friends. But the truth is, you know, until until we bought this condo, he's, you know, he, he, most days he can't get out of his house, and he's living a life of poverty. Uh, but since then, of course, of course, Arnie Duncan helped repurpose his job, and so he'll start. For the first time now, he'll go back to work in September as a restorative justice counselor working with troubled kids at, at Marshall High School. Well, that, that, that's a really good story, Russ. And yeah, you mentioned, I mean, uh, you've authored uh, several books. Uh, you're, you're a writer. How, how, does, how does one go from being a Division I basketball coach to, to an author and a writer? Well, I was always, in retrospect, I know that, it was, for example, when I worked with Don Haskins or Lou Henson, I'm not sure I could drop one of Lou's plays. 
uh, even though, of course, we, we, drilled, we drilled it into them through film and all oh, repetition. I don't know if any of that ever sunk in with me, but I, I have some great Lou Henson stories. And, and I was always more interested in the stories behind the, behind the game, more so than, uh, you know, I was interested in teaching ball handling and this and that. But I think I, think I was more interested in the stories. And I think in, also, I didn't know this at the time, but in retrospect, basketball for a lot of us, and I bet it's the same for you, but for a lot of fans and players and coaches, it's a window into black culture which I find really interesting. You know, it's a really interesting part of American history for all the negative and all the ups and downs of what it means to be black in, in America. One way, one window for, for many white people to, to sort of, to, to learn more is, you know, through sports. And it's always been sports as, as the great equalizer. Um, you know, if you think of, you know, Jackie Robinson was 1947 that he desegregated major league baseball in the modern era. Well, the U.S. Army, the military desegregated two years after that. And so it's always been, even even when, when Don Haskins won the championship in 1966, it was the next year that, that UTEP had their first black professor. So it's always been sports at the forefront of social change. And I was always a big reader. And I remember, I remember loving Southwest Airlines because there were no assigned seats. And so I could get on the plane last and, oh, I'm stuck in the middle seat away from the players and coaches. Sorry, guys. And I could get out my book and read. <laughs> and, I, and I also re- remember you know, being on the road at hotels and ga- away games or recruiting. I rarely turned on the TV. I always cracked open a book at the end of the day. I got a little tired. I just felt like I, I didn't want to go home like a lot of coaches do it. And they go home at the end of the day and tune on ESPN and watch another game. And I just I quickly got bored with that. that. That's why the last dance was so important to me, Eric, is – I missed a lot of that. I didn't watch every Michael Jordan championship series. I watched bits and pieces of it. I've just always been more interested. In, I was interested in books and in, in the stories. And so I was sort of a closeted reader in many ways and, and met a writer here at New Mexico State named Robert Boswell, who loved basketball. He sat in row two of the games, and I got to meet him, and I'd go over to his home after every game and uh, you know, have a beer and talk about, and he wanted to talk about the game, and I wanted to know what he was reading. And he started inviting me to, why don't you come sit in on the class? And and he did a great favor for me. Is remember the big Monday games that we that used to get played right. with the Western teams all the time? Well, he changed his classes to Tuesdays, so that even if it was a road game, I could go to his his writers' workshop on Tuesday nights. And we usually had Tuesday off. And so I was started sitting in on his classes, and I just got bit. And I'll never forget, Eric, I went in after working with Lou Henson for three years. I just burned out. and I was just tired. It's 14 years of recruiting, and I went into Lou's office in August and said, Lou, I've made a decision. I, I think I want to quit coaching and try to be a writer. And I thought he was going to blast me because the, the school was about to start, and uh, what are we going to do for an assistant? We've got practice coming up. And he said, wait here for a minute, Russ. And he went in and talked to the athletic director, a man named Brian Faison. And they both came back into the office and said, Russ, we're going to pay for your graduate school. Wow. And, you know, it's not the buy, it's not the buyout that, uh, you know, it's not the buy, it's not the buyout, the big buyout that an NBA coach gets or any, uh, but it, but, but I, but it really, it helped me on my way. And I didn't know it at the time, but Lou's son, Lou Jr., who died tragically in a car crash in the early 1990s, I think, Lou was a closeted writer. He wrote all the time. He wrote poetry and short stories, and he had notebooks and notebooks filled with writing when he died. 
and I think Lou, you know, Lou and Mary are big readers, and I think that, that I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that I'm like another son to Lou or that I replaced Lou Jr. But I think he, because he's had other assistant coaches that he's much closer with that worked for him for for decades. But but I think Lou is Lou would not turn his nose up at 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 being a writer or being interested in in you know writing short stories or that kind of thing. And so he was very uh, supportive, and I, they've read all my books and they come to my my book events and that kind of thing. And so that really that really sent me on my way. Well, you mentioned the the last dance, and uh, that was a big topic on on this uh, podcast for the first few weeks when there wasn't a whole lot of sports going on. And I tried to do a whack tie-in every week to the last dance. But when I was watching it, uh, episodes nine and ten, when they profiled Steve Kerr and did his backstory with his uh, father being murdered and and all the things uh, that led up to Steve hitting that big shot in the in the NBA championship, I uh, went and checked out uh, Steve's Twitter. Uh, page because I had heard that uh, he's a pretty interesting follow and and lo and behold I click on there and and he's tweeting about Sean Harrington and uh, that that had to mean a, a lot for you and and for uh, all, all the people you're working with and trying to help Sean that a guy like Steve Kerr is going to tweet something out about him on, on a night when uh, you know his profile is pretty high. We were we were stunned, Eric, and it really it really was a game changer for us because. You know, we started the fundraiser for Sean, and three days later, Kobe's helicopter went down. Mm. And then pretty quickly, the virus took hold. And so that was in the news. And then people were losing their jobs. And so right. a lot of the 10 and 20 and $30 donations stopped. But then when, when Steve Kerr tweeted about it, it really pretty, you know, Beto O'Rourke had tweeted about it a, a couple weeks before. And, and, you know, he's very interested in issues of gun violence. But Steve Kerr, I think, is a real hero to many of us uh, involved in sports that are interested in social justice and progress. You know, and, and the story of Malcolm Kerr getting killed, I think it's the real one of the great tragedies of it is that he was extremely progressive. He was very supportive of of Islam and, you know, uh, uh embraced you know embraced the muslim you know muslim religion as the college president of american university in beirut and was killed by muslim extremists i mean they wouldn't have been able to find an american more supportive of the of the muslim cause and i think that was one of the great tragedies of 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 that event but i know steve was marked by the loss of a parent and sean harrington's you know mother was killed in a in a botched home invasion back in 2003 and so they have this this weird tie-in um you know and they were both guards of course and uh but yet it just it just meant the world to to sean and, and that's what's so remarkable about sean's stories he's he's he had fallen into the cracks and it's you know one uh, heavy hitter after another has sort of reached down to help. Vince Carter, you know, tweeted about it and donated. Sean Harrington donated as well, and so did so did Petto O'Rourke. But one of the things that has really struck me in, in writing the book, All the Dreams We've Dreamed, is, you know, those, you know, Sean's murder got solved pretty quickly, and the shooters are behind bars already for long prison sentences. But most of the shootings go unsolved, and most of the victims of gun violence that survive. Fall, do fall through the cracks and it's only you know yes i'm helping sean harrington but there's a lot of other guys to help that i'll you know that i'll that i'll never you know maybe after after we get sean harrington situated i can i can find it on you know another quest but 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 uh yeah but but steve's Kerr thing really brought things front and center again you know we were we've been featured on the today show and 
HBO Real Sports and the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune have written about it. And the local papers, the Sun News, Las Cruces Sun News and the El Paso Times, of course. But it's just important to keep keep the story out there. And because of the nature of Twitter, you know, it's it, it went crazy. The fundraising went crazy for two days and then it just, you know, stopped again. And right. now we've got a We've got to, and we've still got a ways to go in the fundraising, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll get another boost at some point. Where do if people want to donate, where do they go? Well, it, it's on a GoFundMe. So I think if you just Googled Sean Harrington GoFundMe, you would. Just, but the key is the the spelling of Sean Harrington is S H A W N. Right. You know, he he spells it in a sort of a more Americanized, you know, a more Americanized, not the, not the Irish version of it, but. Uh, and if you just Google Sean Harrington Chicago, you can learn the dramatic story. Or if you want to buy the, if you want to buy the book, of course. <laughs> but the book, the book has done remarkably well, and there's film interest and and television interest and, and that kind of thing. No, nothing, nothing, nothing for sure yet. But I think people understand. Uh, I, I think what really, well, I think part of what really hit home for me, Eric, is that I have a daughter that's about the same age as Sean's daughter. And the idea of, you know, when, when I first had a daughter, if she fell down on the playground, I felt this sudden pain in my gut. And then I started, if, if another kid fell down, I started getting that pain in my gut. Like, oh, my God, is that kid okay? Yeah. And I think once you have, you know, I, I knew for years, I knew that Nolan Richardson's daughter had died of leukemia at age 15. But it just didn't, like I thought, oh, yeah, that's sad, his daughter died. But when I had when I had my own daughter, then it really hit home for me, right. like, I thought about what would happen. What would happen to me if if my daughter died? How would I? How could I manage it? Because if she fell and skinned her knee on the playground, I was a wreck. You know, and and I think that's I think that's part of what was so compelling about uh, you know about about uh, Sean, about Sean's story was the idea of saving the child's life. I think really resonated with with a lot of people. And of course, Sean says, "Oh, I did what any parent would do," as if we're all like. Rambo, you know, or Bruce Lee, that we would all spring into action as soon as the bullets start flying. I mean, he reacted like a war hero, and of course, he's never been in the military. I'd like to think I would do what Sean did, but how will we react when the bullets start flying? I don't know. It's like that lady in right. Central Park who, 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 you know, who, who, you know, who, who panics when you know panics at someone filming her. Like, how are we going to react under pressure? Is and that's I think the great thing that sports teaches you is that I think part of Sean's reaction was, you know, he'd been in intense situations before, but, you know, he reacted like a war hero and saved his daughter's life. And I think that's part of the reason why it's such a compelling story. Talking with Russ Bradbird. And if they do wind up making that into a movie or, or TV, Russ, uh, if you're portrayed in that uh, story, who, who's the actor who's going to play Russ Bradbird? <laughs> Well, I don't know. It's probably more likely to be Wallace Shawn than, than Brad Pitt. But uh, I mean, my 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 part of the, my part of this what I tell people when they say, "Oh, it's great what you're doing for Sean Harrigan." What I did was type. You know, I I told the story. What he's doing is really heroic. The 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 day to day bat, uh, struggle of being you know paraplegic and losing your job and losing your health insurance is a really traumatic thing. And I, I know there's times when I was working on the book where I thought. You know, I live in Chicago usually in the summers. I'm not going to this summer, but there were times when I just thought, and I'd ride my bike out to see him. It was an hour bike ride, but but um, there were times I thought I just can't go see him for a couple of days. It, it was really it was disheartening. You know, like I just don't know how he does it. Like how how do you how do you go on with your life when you know you're unjustly 
shot and you know and lose every you know lose everything i just thought you know and 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 so uh but who would play me in the who would play me in the, i don't know you know uh, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, i've actually had movie people ask me that before when we were flirting with the idea of the but i don't know if we'd have you know denzel play sean harrington or or uh, or and part of the tragedy with him you know he lost as i mentioned his mother was killed in 2003 in a, in a botched home invasion um and so he, you know, he, he was an only child. And so he's, he's, you know, he wound up, I think when you grow up in those neighborhoods, it's very, and as, as everyone knows, it's gotten worse and worse. Um, you know, the, it's just, you know, every, every teenager, you know, every teenager in Chicago, it's not every teenager, plenty of teenagers in Chicago have pistols now. And it's now, you know, how do we move forward with this? And, and so I think, I really think America is at a big crossroads now. Yeah, and you mentioned Sean, played at Marshall High School and that's where he was working when when the this uh, shooting happened uh that he he was dr- dropping his daughter off before he was going to work at Marshall uh, of course and you mentioned the the movie Hoop Dreams one of my all-time favorite movies a documentary about uh, two kids in Chicago Arthur Agee and uh, William Gates who both went to a private school initially and then Arthur uh, wound up at uh, Marshall and and the irony in that and that was that uh, Arthur wound up going further in the in the state tournament but Sean was a uh, a teammate of Arthur's and uh, I, I believe you could see him in that movie Yes uh you, you, Sean makes a few cameos mm-hmm. if you if you know what what time to look for Sean there he is waving at the camera saying take state <laughs> baby number 1 um but I think I think um you know that's one of the interesting things about that film. I, is it, it, it's one of the greatest documentary films ever made. And I watched it a, a couple of years ago again for probably the fourth time, right after the, right before my book was about to be published. Thinking I better refamiliarize, and it was pretty sad to think. You know, not that much has changed. I mean, there weren't there weren't cell phones back then, and uh, that kind of thing. But you know, the, the struggles haven't haven't changed that much. And there's actually a very, another very good movie that Sean is a big part of a documentary film. that's very good. It's uh, a little bit under the, under the radar. It's on Amazon prime, but it's called shy town. And it's about Kiefer Sykes, who everyone thought was headed to the NBA, another Marshall player. And he wound up not making it, but in the middle of his uh, sophomore season in the film at Wisconsin green Bay is when Sean Harrington got shot. And so Kiefer goes to visit Sean in the It's a documentary film, of course. And, Kiefer goes to visit Sean, and um, so there's, you know, that's what's amazing about Sean is he's, he's he's actually become for a guy who's living a life of poverty, he has a fairly high profile. Now the uh, switching topics a little bit here, Russ. The NBA draft will be coming up October fifteenth. Uh, they've announced uh, with the NBA returning to action at the end of July at, in the bubble in Orlando, and saw an article recently about Trev Queen uh, working out and uh, hoping that he gets his name called. Russ, you've been around New Mexico State basketball a long time. Uh, you've seen Pascal. You've seen uh, uh, Jamario Jones. Uh, some other guys get get chances in the NBA. Uh, is Trev Queen the next one that uh, could get that opportunity? Well, I happen to think he will be, but I don't I don't know if it will happen this year. I think he might do the have to do the Jamario Jones route. One of the interesting things about Trev Queen is I mean, he's improved dramatically. As he's he's a much better player now than he was two or three years ago, and it was one of the things I learned from Tim Hardaway, who who was not a good shooter when he played at UTEP, and when he was never a great shooter in the NBA. But he came up, he had a better Hardaway had a better three point shooting percentage from a you know a, a greater distance in the NBA than college. He had a much better 
shooting uh, percentage in the pros against bigger players and better players than he did, and, and he just kept improving. And I think that's what I think that's what and Jamario Jones has, of course, too. And I think that's what will happen. I think that's my prediction with Trev Queen. He's still a little bit thin, and he's still you know, and I and uh, he's only had Chris Jans as his coach for two years. I mean. You know, Chris Jans is a great, great coach, and he's he's more he's, he's more like Don, a young Don Haskins than any coach I've ever seen. Boy, is he tough on those guys! But he's fair, and everyone, nobody's safe. The manager, the manager could get hollered at. I could get hollered. I, if I go watch practice, I don't speak to anybody because I thought I don't want Chris Jans yelling at me to pay attention. <laughs> I mean, he's he is on everybody, and it's he's relentless from the beginning to the end. And then as soon as practice ends, he can joke and laugh with him, but he's only had Trev Queen for a year and a half. And I think if he had Trev Queen for another year, because I think, because the first time I saw him out there, I thought, well, he's never going to last. He won't, he can't guard anybody, but they just kept on him and kept on him and kept on him. And, and he kept getting his confidence and they just sort of built him up. And it's, you know, what Chris Jans does is very similar to what Don Haskins does is he's going to tear you down first and then build you up. And boy, if, 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 You've got to be tough to take it, but if you can survive that, and I think the theory is much like what Don Haskins said. His theory was, you know, we're gonna, you know, if they can't survive me, they're never gonna survive playing at the pit, or playing at Cal Bakersfield, or playing or playing at Grand Canyon in front of nine thousand screaming people in purple. That uh, if you can't handle getting yelled at at practice, you won't, you know. I mean, it goes back to the Sean Harrington's active heroism. He'd been reacting under pressure as a player under incredible pressure, and I think that in some ways prepared him for the, his heroic move. Well, I think it's the same with Trev Queen, and, and I think he's a little bit thin, and he's still getting his, you know, he's still improving defensively, but boy, is he skilled. And to go from, you know, to go from coming out of nowhere to being MVP of the of the, of the the tournament, he, you know, he could have very well been MVP again this year. So I'm a huge fan of Trev Queen, and he seems like such an interesting kid. You know, you can kind of see him mulling things over and talking to himself a little bit sometimes on the side, you know, he's, he seems to be, he seems to be his own, he seems to be his own coach in a way, because you can see him sort of whispering to himself at times. Trev Queen had injured himself earlier in the year. He missed uh, several games, came back, and I don't think I've seen anybody come back from, I believe it was a knee injury, and show no ill effects of it. And in fact, against CBU, there was a sequence, I think your last home game, where he had a couple of dunks through his his headband into the crowd, threw one off the backboard and dunked it. He he didn't show any ill effects of being injured uh, just a few weeks before. I didn't think of that so much as a game, as a celebration. I mean, it was really <laughs> remarkable. And I, and I think Cal Baptist, by the way, is an up-and-coming team. But just for whatever reason, everything went right for New Mexico State. Everything went wrong for Cal Baptist. And it was like the entire game was a highlight tape. You know, even the walk-ons scored a dramatic basket at the end, and yeah, and, and Trev Queen was unbelievable. But I want to go. I'll go. I'll go back a few. I remember the first game he came back, and the second game, I thought I whispered to Adam Young, the great play-by-play guy that I work with. I I told Adam, uh, well, that's it. He's never going to be the same player again. You can tell already. Well, I just that's why I think it's another. And, and of course, he was as good as ever by the end of the season. And I just thought. Uh, what I think now is that anyone who can improve as dramatically as he did before his junior year, then come back from a knee injury and be the same player uh, that he was. Uh, if NBA people don't take notice of that, they're not paying attention. And I and I also think if he doesn't play in the NBA, I do think that he's a guy that can play in the very top levels of 
of Europe because he's such a versatile scorer. You know, the, the my, you know, I coached in Ireland for two years, which is the worst level of pro basketball in the world. But the common, the common, uh, uh, the common um, philosophy over there is we need a player who can do a lot of things. We can't have a one. A Steve Kerr guy would be less uh, less valuable in Europe. They need they need the guy who can do a little bit of everything. And you'll know, you know, Trev Queen's rebounding and blocking shots and getting assists, and 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 so I think I think if he does not make the NBA, he'll have a long, storied career as a European player. Talking with Russ Bradburn, Russ, uh, I mentioned a few times uh, as we've been talking to you all the different hats that you wear, and that includes uh, teaching classes, being a professor there at New Mexico State, uh, but you also write articles in addition to the books you've written. And uh, recently, you you wrote an article. Uh, and slamonline.com about uh, Jer- the passing of Jerry Sloan. And you mentioned you grew up in Chicago. And what uh, what was uh, some of the reasons behind writing that article? Well, I actually, you know, that that article got recirculated after Jerry Sloan died. But okay. I, it, I think I'd written it maybe I think I'd written it maybe six or seven years ago. It was after he after he stepped down. I you know the rumor was he'd gotten forced out with the Jazz. Right. And he was one of my my heroes as a kid. You know the WGN was broadcasting every Bulls game at that point, and so he was one of my heroes as a kid. And uh, and I you know I had I had a couple ins with him that I, I I'd never met him before, but I knew people who knew him and that kind of thing which is a long convoluted story, but I was able to get through to him. And he said, well, you can, if you want to interview me, you can come to my house. And he was in McLeansboro, Illinois, which is, you know, so far South in Illinois, it's practically halfway. So I drove to, cause there's no good way to get to McLeansboro. So I drove uh, with my family to meet him. And uh, at first he was very standoffish and his arms folded across his chest. I wound up sitting with him for a few hours um, and I could tell. I thought I'll bring my daughter. Was so cute at that age. I thought I'll bring my wife and daughter, and he'll just he'll melt when he sees my daughter. And he just sort of stared, looked at him, and didn't have much to. And, and I quickly said to Connie, "Why don't you guys go to the McDonald's in town, and, and I'll come get you afterward. You know, and you can come get pick me up afterwards." And so they went off to the McDonald's, and I sat with Jerry for a while. And but I think one of the, the, the article the article for Slam makes the case called "Rise and Grind" instead of "Rise and Shine" because he was a real grinder. And the, the article makes the case for that. Uh, first, what's interesting about him is people disdain transfers now, and they, there's great remorse. Oh, there's so many kids transferring. But Jerry Sloan was a transfer. He started at Illinois, uh, and and Larry Bird was a transfer. And there's there is a long history of, of tough-nosed players. That you know, I think the toughness of players gets called into question. That they weren't as tough as they used to be. But Jerry Sloan was a transfer, and but. Uh, but he, uh, I think I make the case in the piece that he may have been the greatest NBA coach in history. He didn't win as many championships as Phil Jackson or Pat Riley. He didn't win as many games as Lenny Wilkins or whatever. But he had the longest tenure of any coach in any professional sport at one point. He was the coach for 23 years, and no one lasts that long in pro coaching. And you know, he was coming in, you know, he was in the one of the best three or four teams year after year after year in a place where, frankly, a lot of players don't want to go. They don't want to go play. No one dreams of playing in Salt Lake unless I think you grew up in that area. And so I think he was extremely underrated as a coach. And just, you know, after being around Don Haskins and Lou Henson all that time, he was a real throwback in a way that I remember an NBA coach telling me a few years ago, an NBA assistant telling me, that there's only three or four teams where the coaches are still in charge. It's such a player's league. 
and that Popovich was one of them, and Doc Rivers was one of them, and Jerry Sloan was one of them, and that 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 they were that was that was a you know being run closer to a, a college model where we're going to tell you what to do, you're not going to tell us what to do. And of course, I have mixed feelings about that. I don't think anybody goes to the game, you know, in the, in the pros or college to see. The, you know, see the coach coach. They're generally going to see the players play. But I thought I think Sloan was a re- remarkable guy, and he'd he'd lost a parent at a very young age. His mother had died. And he grew up getting up at four in the morning and milking the cows, and and then having had to be at practice at six a.m. And he had never been out of his county uh, until he went to college. And to think about you know how being an isolated sort of um, living a sheltered life, but a real hard scrabble. Life. And I think that's why Jerry Sloan could relate to the African-American players so well. It came from tough backgrounds is that, uh, and Greg Foster told me this, who, you know, played for, you know, played for Jerry Sloan and is now an Atlanta Hawks assistant. He said, he got it. These guys were tough, hard scrabble, single parent kids a lot of the time. And, and, you know, and so was Jerry Sloan. Russ, uh, I think I could sit here and uh, chat with you all day, but uh, we'll, we'll want to uh, look forward to talking to you maybe in uh, in a few months here once we uh, hopefully get back to normal here. But uh, one thing I did want to ask you before we let you go, obviously this week, uh, New Mexico State uh, getting a lot of coverage on the baseball side of things as the MLB baseball draft will be on Wednesday and Nick Gonzalez I've seen in uh, several mock drafts going in the top five I gotta imagine everybody in uh, Las Cruces is pretty excited to see where Nick goes in Wednesday's Major League Baseball draft it's one of the great baseball programs in the country and what a year that what a, what a year Nick had but it, one of the you know it's I think it's a great tragedy that UTEP hasn't had a baseball team now for 30 years it, this is a great part of you know that's only 30 minutes away mm-hmm. Las Cruces is a great place to play baseball because you can play every day it's just you know it's great it's great baseball weather and so you know when you go to the New Mexico State baseball games there's the beautiful Oregon Mountains in the background and it's you know, sunny and it's just a, it's a great and it's affordable. As the men's basketball is affordable too, but you don't get to see the mountains when you when you watch it. And so it's a it's a fun place. And you know, Adam Young, the the, the great play by play guy that I mentioned, he does the baseball games as well. And you know, Mario Mocho is a, a terrific baseball player for the Aggies. So he has a I think has a real soft spot for uh, for New Mexico. You know, for baseball. You know, not getting shoved aside. I, one of the things I admire about Mario is I don't think he thinks there are minor sports. I think he pays plenty of attention to right. our volleyball team and track team. And to him, that there, there, there aren't really minor sports. Everybody gets a, everybody gets a fair shake with Mario. Well, it's a, it's going to be an exciting time. So we look forward to that. And you know, Russ, we want to thank you for taking some time out. And uh, like I said, hopefully we see you uh, this uh, fall and winter. And uh, and good luck uh, the rest of the way, and and hopefully uh, we'll keep us updated on on what's happening with Sean Harrington. Thanks, Eric. I mean, I do think that you know the WAC is one of the great great conferences, and there's so many up and coming teams with Grand Canyon and Bakersfield and Rio Grande Valley, and so it's it's an exciting time to be in the WAC, and and I uh, hope I'll be at courtside again for for the television during the winter. All right, that is Russ Bradbird. When we come back. We're going to have uh, an interview that uh, Rachel Vigil did with Nick Gonzalez last week in uh, uh, anticipation of this week's Major League Baseball draft. You're listening to the WAC Podcast. Today's episode of the WAC Podcast is presented by Hercules Tires. Now, back to the WAC Podcast. Welcome back to the WAC Podcast. Eric Danner with you. Rachel Vigil 
had a chance to catch up with Nick Gonzalez, the outstanding National Player of the Year from New Mexico State, second base shortstop. He can do it all. She had a chance to talk to him on Whack All Access on Instagram this past week, and here's how that interview went. Nick, hello. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Let me fix this real quick. I'm doing well. Good, I hear you're a busy man. Yeah, for the most part. Good. Have you done any other media interviews today, or is this the first one? Um, No media interviews today. This is the first one. Gotcha. Nice. Well, how are you? How are things? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. So I, let's first of all talk. I feel like with Corona and everything going on, obviously your season didn't go the way I'm sure you expected it to. And I feel like COVID's kind of one of those things where you'll always remember where you were when this started to happen. So what were you doing when you kind of found out about your season? Yeah, I was packing up my suitcase in my room to leave to San Diego when uh, Mike Pritchard, our coach, kind of texted and said, hey, the series was canceled. He didn't say the season was canceled. He just said the series was canceled. Team meeting on Monday, and I think I was like on Thursday. I mean, it was a Wednesday. I think on a Wednesday. Okay, and once you found out that the season was going to be canceled, what were your first thoughts? My first thoughts were just, you know, I felt really bad for the seniors. Uh, I was in a good position. You know, I felt good going in. But, you know, our seniors who, you know, I wasn't sure if they were going to get a season back, get their year back. They didn't get the proper uh, farewell ceremony that they deserve. So I was just really hoping that they could, uh, you know, the NCAA would work something out and they'd be able to come back. Have you been able to talk to some of your teammates and kind of just be a light at the end of the tunnel for them? Yeah, I, I talk to them. I keep in touch with them and, you know, help them out as much as they can or what's going on, but everyone's healthy and everyone's safe. So that's, that's what's most important. That's what matters. What have you been doing to stay in shape? Yeah, I just been working out, hitting all the time. Uh, you know, I had a Mr. Bannister, uh, shout out to Mr. Bannister in New Mexico. He let me hit at his place and lift at his place uh, during the whole quarantine. So that was really nice. Nice. What are your workouts looking like nowadays? Obviously MLB draft coming up very soon. Yeah, I'm able to, you know, lift some more weight now because I'm not really worried about being sore and playing and throwing and being sore and all that stuff. So I'm able to lift a little bit more, uh, hit a little bit more, do all that type of stuff and really enjoying it. How excited are you for the MLB draft coming up? Obviously, your name's out there. It's definitely high up. Yeah, yeah I'm extremely excited. I can't really sleep at night. I kind of just wake up and think about it during like early in the morning and then I don't go back to sleep. So it's kind of... Um, it's very exciting. What are you going to do for the draft? Anything? Have some family over, hopefully? Yeah, I'll just be at the house, have some family and friends over, and, you know, just really enjoy the moment. Nice. So I guess I want to know, when did you first kind of decide, maybe I want to go into the MLB and do something professional with baseball? Uh, I would say probably, like, my first swing ever in baseball when I was like four years old, I think probably <laughs> that's probably when it really happened where I really wanted to play baseball. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of just been my dream ever since. Okay. Now, when did you realize that this dream could actually come true? Um, I don't know. I don't think I really have realized it yet. Maybe, uh, maybe on the 10th, I'll probably uh, realize it. Nice. What have your coaches been able to say to you to kind of just keep your spirits high during all of this? Yeah, they've, they've just, you know, talked to me and said they're super proud and everything like that. And, um, you know, miss having you out there. I'm going to miss having you out there and everything, but super proud of you, everything like that. It's been nice. During your time at the Cape, Cape or Lee, excuse me, what did you kind of learn most out of that trip and that summer experience? 
Yeah, I learned a lot from the players uh, playing with them and the coaches. Uh, you know, super fortunate to play with all those guys over there. I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, some really good players. You know, you learn from them, and also competing with some of the best players in the country, you really learn a lot, and uh, you take in a lot of information, and you kind of just use it for the next season. Have you been able to talk to any players that you know now that are playing professionally to kind of give you some advice for this time? Yeah, I'll, I talk to Joey Ortiz every day, and he kind of tells me everything that he has, you know, uh, how much he's enjoyed it, and it, it just sounds like a lot of fun, so I'm super excited. How is Joey? He's awesome. He's doing really good. He's in California right now, but he was living with me in New Mexico uh, that whole quarantine pretty much. So it was just me and him in New Mexico, and we were, you know, hanging out and working out and stuff. Nice. And so where are you right now? Are you back home in Arizona? Yeah, I'm back in Tucson right now. Nice. How long are you planning to be there? Or is it kind of all up in the air? Yeah, it's all up in the air. I don't know. I just packed my suitcase with everything. So I don't know how long I'll be here. <laughs> Have they told you anything about what this season could look like for baseball? Obviously, the season hasn't started yet. So do you have any idea what your next couple of months could hold? No, I, I really don't. I'm really the only thing I know is the drafts on the 10th. And that's pretty much it so far. Nice. I guess let's also talk about top five and ten categories. I mean, oh. obviously you're an incredible second baseman. So when did you kind of realize, hey, this could be it. This could be my pathway. We need to improve in all of these other aspects. And when did you finally feel like you saw results? Yeah, I would say uh, my freshman fall is kind of where I put in a lot of work with Coach Green and a lot of work with all the coaches with everything. And they didn't really yield results until probably – uh, February and in the spring. So it was about uh, five months of me just putting a lot of work in and not really seeing anything until the spring came around where uh, fortunately it ended up showing. Has Coach Green reached out to you? Yeah, he has. He texted me yesterday uh, and he said he was really excited and he wants me to go to Washington. So. <laughs> Be a little bit closer <laughs> to him, right? Yeah, definitely. Nice. So, And what's your family been up to during this whole time? Hopefully they're all safe. Yeah, everyone's all safe. Uh, my mom's working from home sometimes. My dad's working a little bit, and uh, he's still able to go throw to me and everything and do all that stuff. So Good. You know, we're always looking for new, like, Netflix shows or Hulu. So what have you been watching during this quarantine? Uh, I haven't really been watching anything because I'm so weird with Netflix shows. I don't even watch – I'll, like, watch all the old stuff that I've already seen a million times. So I haven't watched anything new, but mostly I've just been trying to play Call of Duty and stuff. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. How good are you at Call of Duty? My boyfriend plays as uh, well, so I hear all about it. I'm horrible. I'm horrible at Call of Duty. <laughs> I just play because I enjoy playing and talking to my friends and stuff, but I'm not any good. You're not good at all, huh? No, no, not good. <laughs> Xbox or PlayStation? PlayStation, yeah. Okay, gotcha. That's exactly how my boyfriend is, too. So, obviously, COD, baseball, what else have you been up to during quarantine? Uh, just lifting and working out and hanging out with my girlfriend. That's about it. That's pretty much what I do uh, all the time. Nice. I want to see if anybody's dropped any questions for you down here. Um, a lot of people, when we ask for questions, just really wanted to know what you've been up to in quarantine and how you've been staying in shape. Um, anybody else has dropped anything. Lots of people are just saying hi to you. Uh, lots <laughs> of thumbs up for sure. Uh, let's see what else. All right. Well, I guess if anybody has any questions for Nick, make sure you drop them below. We're going to stay on for about five, ten more minutes on here. But I guess, Nick, just what else has been going on? I mean, obviously things are kind of crazy right now. So 
uh, how are, I guess, have scouts been talking to you and giving you kind of any feedback on what you can improve on? Obviously, you're not playing right now, so. Yeah, uh, you you know, you, you talk to some uh, scouts and stuff and people in the teams, and they kind of, you know, just tell you what's going on, but they try to get to know you personally uh, before, you know, the draft and everything, and, you know, you kind of get that worked out, and, you know, you have meetings with them every once in a while, uh, probably a few a week, talk to them, uh, and then you can ask questions, uh, you know, how their, how their uh, organization is ran, you know, certain philosophies, stuff like that. Is there anything that you're really looking for in an organization? Um, sorry, I just saw Tristan <laughs> comment. No, um, not really. I mean, any organization that, that uh, would like me to play for them, I'm so in and I would love to play for them. Uh, that's all that, that, it, <laughs> that. You got some good friends on here for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, let's see. How has training been during these crazy times? You kind of touched on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I've been able to train, and I'm super fortunate to have Mr. Bannister in New Mexico that you know let us do everything we had to do. So, you know, I was I was so uh, just happy that I had all that in order to lift, to hit, and you know have the resources because a lot of people didn't have that. You know, they were listing like milk jugs and like milk cartons and stuff like that. So. Uh, someone asked, what's your favorite restaurant in Tucson? Uh, my favorite restaurant, probably Minidito, uh, Mexican restaurant. That's probably my favorite. Or Silver Saddle Steakhouse. Okay. Uh, at the Mexican restaurant, what do you get? Um, I get the president plate because Bill Clinton went there a long time ago and ate. And I guess he got, like a, it's just like a combination plate of a bunch of like tamales, enchiladas, everything. Delicious. I love Mexican food. Uh, people, I guess, want to know kind of the basics. What's your favorite color? Uh, blue. That's my favorite color, blue. Favorite dessert? Uh, favorite dessert? Lately, I've been getting Dairy Queen, uh, hot fudge, peanut butter, chocolate, hot fudge, chocolate, and peanut butter sundae. That's just it. It's just real basic. That's what my mom got, and, and I really enjoyed it. And then, uh, and then, yeah, that's probably it. Five Guys versus In-N-Out. Yeah, that's my girlfriend. She knows I like Five Guys. That's where we go. Uh, five Guys. It's hard, though. I always say you can't really compare them because Five Guys is kind of, like, more expensive, so it's a little higher quality. But In-N-Out is always the same, and it's always good. So it's kind of hard to compare them. It is always good. Uh, someone wants to know, are you growing a mullet? No, not really. <laughs> it's uh, It's like a faux hawk. I don't know if I'm going to cut it yet, but not a mullet. Close, though. Uh, Whataburger versus Blake's. So I've only had Blake's like once or twice. And I think Blake's is with the green chilies. And the one or two times I've eaten it, it was so hot that I couldn't even enjoy it. So I'm going to go with uh, Whataburger. Gotcha. Uh, second base versus shortstop. Uh, I say wherever. I just want to hit. <laughs> nice. I love how people are doing a lot of like cats versus dogs. <laughs> cats versus dogs. Um, I love dogs. I have three dogs, so I really enjoy dogs. And cats are kind of different. They kind of scare me. They're kind of mean little creatures. So I don't really, I don't really like cats. What kind of dogs do you have? I have a Australian Shepherd, a Maltese Poodle, and then a Blue Pitbull. 
Uh, is there any, I guess this is a question for me, is there any town that you would absolutely love to go play for? Did you have a dream team as a kid? Yeah, so I'm a Yankee fan, and I love watching the Yankees play. So that's kind of, uh, you know, growing up, watching those guys play. My dad loves the Yankees, grandpa loves the Yankees, all that. So I definitely like New York. That's a big move, though. All the way from Arizona yeah. to New York. Yeah, I know it is. Have you been out there? Have you ever been to a game? Yeah, I have. I actually went in 2009 before uh, they tore down this old stadium. I got to go see nice. A-Rod, Jeter, all the favorite guys. Nice. Somebody just said Yankees would be awesome. Um, we had another yep. one who asked how to get recruited. So maybe talking to all the high schoolers that their season got cut for, what advice would you have for them? Yeah. Uh, personally, I would just say, you know, just continue to work hard. Uh, you know, try to play as much as you can uh, all the time, always plan. Um, you know, just to keep your skills sharp. And then, you know, wherever, uh, whatever team wants you, whatever you want to go, uh, make sure they really, you know, want you and they really uh, are interested in developing you uh, to get to the next level. I read an article about you, Nick, and they talk about how you were always the last person to leave the field. You were always the first one in to get hit. Has that mentality been with you through your entire career? Or would you say that it was just something that you realized this was your dream and you wanted to go for it? Yeah, I would say it's been with me pretty much my whole career. And it's more so because I just love to hit so much. I think I love hitting more than anybody else because I'll just go and hit for forever because, you know, it's just a lot of fun for me. Nice. Uh, somebody said, what advice for a young kid in Little League? Yeah, I would say swing hard in case you hit it and um, have as much fun as you can. There you go. Now, would you say after this is all done, would you ever be interested in coaching? Yeah, of course. I would love to to coach. Um, that would be great. You know, I've seen uh, great coaches and I've had great mentors that have helped me throughout my whole career. So I would definitely love to to coach and help people out. And and uh, that'd be great. I love this question. Someone said, "Do you have any mental blocks, and how do you overcome them?" Um, <laughs> I'm not really sure. Uh, mental blocks. What is that? What do you mean? Mental just blocks? anything like, where you don't believe that you can do it, or you know, you're really struggling with this, and you just gotta overcome it. Okay, okay, yeah. I would just say by continuing to work hard and, and remember why you are doing whatever you may be doing. You know, uh, for me, I always, you know, when I'm going through something tough in baseball, I always realize or you know think about why I play the game of baseball, and it's because I love to play. So uh, that's kind of you know how I overcome things like that. Well, we've been on for 15 minutes, so I don't want to take too long of your afternoon because I know you are very, no very busy. We did get one more oh. question, though, and I want to do yeah. this, too. Favorite baseball movie? Ooh. This is a good That's one. That's easy. That oh, This is okay. easy for me. Uh, and all my friends watching Benchwarmers. Easily. Why is that? I don't know. It's just so dumb and that is hilarious. And I love Adam Sandler's whole gang. So I think, you know, Rob Snyder and those guys are just David Spade. Those guys are hilarious. So I really enjoy Benchwarmers. And that's like, you know, if you ask anyone older, like my parents or something, they're like, are you serious? That's your favorite baseball movie? That movie's so dumb. But I don't know. I guess my generation just kind of grew up watching that movie. And it's just like so funny to us. I mean, there's Major League. There's A League of Their Own. There's all these movies. But for me, Benchwarmers just tops all of them. Do you watch it at least once a year? Yeah, probably more than that. Probably I love more it. Than that. <laughs> nice, Nick. Well, honestly, everybody here at the WAC, we are wishing you the best of luck. I'm sure everybody on this chat, too, is. Um, obviously, maybe we'll sit down and chat with you after the draft. 
love to get to talk to you and see how that experience went. Does that sound good? Yep. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you for everybody who's joining. All right, Rachel Hill, great job interviewing Nick Gonzalez. We, of course, wish him all the luck in the world in this week's Major League Baseball draft. Hopefully he will hear his name very early on. We also want to thank Russ Bradbird and his story he told us in this show about uh, Sean Harrington and about uh, Don Haskins and Lou Henson. A lot of interesting stories to tell from Russ Bradbird. We want to thank him for joining us. And we want to thank you for listening to the WAC Podcast. Thanks for listening to the WAC Podcast. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And check out our website at WACSports.com.